Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. The Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, what's going on? It's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures. You can find us online at cinematicvoid.com as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Podcasts. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible. All right, Jim, what are we talking about today? Well, it's still January. That means it's still January Giallo here on the Cinematic Void podcast and Cinematic Void in general. Like I said many times, this is my favorite programming series I get to do every year. And this month, we've been talking about the films of Sergio Martino and Umberto Lenzi. This episode, we're going back to Umberto Lenzi, and we're talking about the four-film collaboration he did with the great Carol Baker. And joining us today is one of my friends. He's an excellent filmmaker. I'm just going to give you a little bio here so you know who he is in case you don't. He's the founder and CEO of Snowfort Pictures that has produced such films as Cheap Thrills, Yodorowsky's Dune, Starry Eyes, and We Are Still Here. He's also the writer and director of The Fantastic Girl on the Third Floor and the upcoming Jacob's Wife. Please welcome The Void, Travis Stevens. Travis, how you doing, man? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Awesome. Glad to have you on. It's good to see you. It's been a year. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, time has kind of become a, a, a piece of stretchy taffy. Yeah. <laughs> At this point. At this point, I don't know when this is going to end. I'm just going to assume it might never end, and this is just how we're going to do things for the next 20 years until the meteor hits. Yeah, but it gives us a chance to uh, catch up on movies we haven't seen before, right? Exactly. So my first question for you is, how aware of you were were you of Umberto Lenzi before like seeing these films? I not at all, and I, and I think you had recommended them, and. I had some free time on my hands, as other people did, and, you know, got the box set and sat down and, and proceeded to watch all four of them over the course of a week and drank too much. And uh, so I didn't know anything about him as a filmmaker and have been playing catch up ever since. Which is, I'll be honest with you, this is probably the best place to start with them because we're going to talk about as we break down all these all the films that he did with Carol Baker, but these are the movies that he had really good budgets really nice cinematography, really great actors. It was kind of like after this period that I'm, I'm assuming based on the films he made after it, like he just went a little more gonzo. But these are really, I hate to use the term classy because they are sleazy movies, but there's something classy about all four of these films. Yeah, and I, I was excited to see that, that I think my favorite of them, uh, he had worked with Sergio Martino on. And yeah. so that was nice because uh, because Sergio's work, you know, we had spoken about earlier um, and I'm like a big fan of that. And to sort of see these are kind of their own thing. But on that particular movie, there was a bit of sort of, uh, I think, his fingerprints on it a little bit that I've, I appreciated. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk about all of them. So let's just go ahead and jump into it with the very first one that he did with Carol Baker. It's from 1969. It was called Orgasmo, a.k.a. Paranoia, which will make things a bit confusing as we move along, as with all these movies in Umberto Lenzi's Giallo filmography. Titling. Confusing. We'll get into more. You know, as I said, this is the first of the four films he made with Carol Baker, and it's part of a loose trilogy with at least the first three of these, including So Sweet, So Perverse, and A Quiet Place to Kill. The film also stars Lou Castell that was in The Excellent Fist and Pocket. He was also in Rainer Werner Fassbender's Beware of a Holy Whore, 
French actor Claudette Descombes and T Tino Carrera ran out the cast. And Tino was in a giallo that some of you might have heard of. He was in Dario Argento's Cat O' Nine Tales. And for those of you who haven't seen it, which you should have since this was one of the movies I showed on January Giallo in the Cinematist movie, Catherine West, played by Baker, is a glamorous American widow who arrives in Italy several weeks after the death of her older and extremely wealthy husband with the help of her lawyer, Brian. She leads a lonely, uneventful existence until one day a handsome young man named Peter shows up with a broken-down car. Catherine lets him stay the night, and then things start to quickly escalate into a romantic relationship. As Peter moves in, his sister, Eva, also shows up. And then the three of them start partying hard every night, and then Catherine kind of discovers Peter and Eva aren't really sister-brother? There's something weird going on. But as things start to unravel, Catherine just starts feeling like there's some sinister motives going on, especially when they start pouring booze down her mouth with a handful of pills every night and seem to be trying to drive her to suicide while also playing a very, very catchy but also obnoxious pop song anytime on repeat. So many times in this movie. So let's just kind of jump into a little bit about this movie. This is one of those pre-Bird with the Crystal Plumage giallos, which explains why not really black love killers and all that. Granted, Mario Baba made Blood and Black Lace back in 66, which had the kind of the prototype of the black love killer that went on. But like a lot of giallos that were made between then and 69, 70 didn't have black love killers. They were like psychosexual like murder mysteries. And was this the first one you watched, Travis? It was. It was. And, and you know, I think it sets up kind of the elements that are in, in all four of them. You know, right off the bat, it's like these are going to be movies about rich people who are greedy and and bastards and are going to think they're smart enough to get away with a crime. But then they're going to, um, you know, it's not going to work out for them. You know, but I didn't know any of that. I think with Orgasmo, watching it without any sort of understanding of what the movie is going to be, I was just sort of like taken away with these locations and the cinematography and the wardrobe and just sort of how stylish it all felt and just sort of like um like jet set you know and just very euro like a like a pan am air uh commercial from like the the late 60s or early 70s and i was like oh this is great and then you know throwing a bunch of sex and and alcoholism yeah i'm there <laughs> i Pan Am commercial is probably the best way to describe at least the first three of these movies. And you kind of hit on something that we're going to talk about through all these films, which is a weird... Actually, it's in a lot of giallos. The little bit of subgenre of rich assholes who do terrible things, and of course, bad things are going to happen to them. And it's kind of a reoccurring theme. The other thing that kind of goes along in this movie is, and at least three of these movies, there's a clear influence of H.G. Clouseau's um, Les Diaboliques, which, you know, if you've seen that movie, you should see it at this point. It's one of the most famous, like, thriller, art horror movies that's been borrowed from quite a bit over the years in lots of movies and remade and that kind of stuff. So there's a little bit of that in, like, at least the first three of these. But things to point out, we already mentioned, there's no Black Love Killer. In fact, we mentioned the previous Lindsay episode, Lindsay never really used Black Love Killers. Like, when we talk about the Baker set, Knife of Ice is the only one that really has one, and 
or knife and I should say knife and eyes in um seven bloodstained orchids are the only ones that have them. That's the thing about like I love about giallos. They all don't have to have black glove killers, and I think the Argento reliance on having that in the movie kind of like dissuades people from seeing stuff like this. And I think these are really interesting movies, especially when you're looking for like you know something different that's like definitely in a time capsule. Yeah, I think it made in a different time and for a different budget, but you can still sort of see the engineering on the films, which is they tend to open with these credit sequences that sort of give you some scope and some flair of whatever city the story takes place in. And then you end up at this beautiful villa and then you're inside on these sets, these like wonderfully designed sets for, for, you know, the bulk of the movie. And I think, you know, that it's really interesting to see how economically they were made, you know, where you're, you, you feel like you're, you're in Europe and these stories are really, really huge, but you know, it's no different than if you were making like an indie film now on how you'd actually sort of structure your story. And like Orgasma, I th think is, you know, it sets it all up. I mean, she, she gets to that property and you're pretty much in that house, except for a few scenes uh, where she goes to London to meet with the, the whatever, the sisters of her uh, dead husband. Am I just ruining the movie? Do we not actually talk about it? Oh, no, wait, wait, no, please, please. We can talk about the movie. If someone's listening to this without seeing the movies, fuck them. This, 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 this is for people that have seen the movies. So don't, don't worry about spoiling plots. <laughs> for me, like I'm sitting there watching and I'm just like, I, I didn't know who Carol Baker was. Uh, I'm still not, you know, some, you know, I don't know a ton of her work, but I did a little bit of research. But you can just tell from the way the film introduces her that it's it's um, it's as if you took like a, a sitcom star from like the 90s and then you just put him in something that's just a little risque. You know, it's like when Alyssa Milano was doing some movies in the 90s where you're like, oh, my gosh, like. <laughs> Oh, look at that. And and it's like she is comfortable in her skin as an older woman. The the photography's great, so she looks great. And there's just this sort of like I won't even say like sexual freedom to the scenes because it's it's you know exploitive, but there's a yeah, not freedom, but there's just sort of a, a sense of fun that she's having with her own image and that the film is having sort of for the audience. Uh, playing on that so she meets this uh, young young man in a sports car and she's like oh don't send him away to the help invite him in he can fix his car here because his car broke down and then he walks into the shower where she's naked and they like make love and you're like yes this is a great film and then suddenly he shows up with his sister and then they all start partying together and now they're making love and i'm just like yeah, I mean, this is like a it's like a string of firecrackers that just gets lit and just starts bang, 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 keeps getting like going off. So it's it's got a fun sense of, of sort of sleazy play to it without being totally uh, exploited. The the one thing and I should mention this, I just showed this on the cinema in this movie and I did a drinking game because I'm an asshole where it's like every time you see Carol Baker or anyone in the movie take a shot of J&B whiskey, you do the same. Which means you're going to be completely shit-faced about 20 minutes in. It. This was the first Giallo that I saw that I really was wondering if J&B had some kind of deal with the Italian film industry. Which is so much product placement. Because it's just, it's all like front and center. J&B bottle, J&B bottle, J&B bottle. And, and when she gets to that house and, and 
and she's like, they bring out some orange juice and she's like, oh, don't you have anything stronger? Her lawyer goes over to the cocktail like bar and it's not just one bottle of JMB. There's like six bottles of JMB lined up on it. And he like has a pitcher of scotch that he basically gives her that she drinks first thing in the morning after arriving there. And that's her like, like, oh, this is my morning, uh, uh, you know, beverage. But yeah, throughout that movie, the, the size of the decanters and the size of the portions that they're serving characters all day long is enough to make you uh, uh, vomit, you know, dry heave. So I'm surprised you're still alive after uh, showing that and playing that drinking game. I pre-recorded my part of it, so whoever was watching, because I already knew what I was getting into, so it's like, yeah, we'll see if anyone does. And there's definitely a few people who are like, man, fuck you. I have a hangover yeah. now. And I talked about it a little bit on the episode, but the reason why there's so much J&B whiskey bottles, at least in Italian cinema... There's a book that came out. I forget the title of it offhand, but they wrote J&B to ask like, if there was actual product placement in that era. And J&B was like, no. But the one thing they said, which probably made it so you know enticing for Italians to put in the movies, was Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra were the spokesmen in the 60s and 70s. So Italians love Frank and Dean. So it's just, I, I, I guess it represented cool. So it's like, you know what makes this movie cool? J.B. Whiskey. So on We Are Still Here, um, the movie was set in the 70s, and, and Kareem uh, Hussein uh, was shooting it. He was the DP. And he's like, oh, you know, if this movie's set in the 70s, I'm going to bring a, something special to the movie. And so he brought this uh, prop bottle of scotch that said B&J on it. And so he and Jason Eisner, he had it made for Jason Eisner's, I think it was Hobo with a Shotgun, although it may have been the short. But he's like, yeah, we basically have had this in, in every movie that we've done together. And so we should put it in this. So when we are still here, that's the <laughs> bottle they drink from. But then I saw Possessor, and they have it in Possessor, too, at the dad's house when he's pouring himself a drink uh, and talking to the daughter before uh, the numbnuts uh, uh, boyfriend shows up to, to sort of kill him. There it is again, right on the table. So a, a bit of sort of, uh, you know, lineage there to, to the classics through to this present day. I think the other reason why it's, I know we're getting off track talking about Scotch whiskey here, but like, I think the other reason why it's in a lot of movies and not just the Italian ones you see in John Carper's the thing, that's what Kurt Russell's drinking. It's just, it's a green bottle with a yellow label and, like, red text. And it's just very eye-catching and appealing. Yeah. It tastes, um... <laughs> it's cheap. It's affordable. Yeah. Look, you know, I, I like Johnny Walker Blue. I can't afford Johnny Walker Blue all the time. So, I'm okay with getting a Jane b bottle here and there. Moving away from Jane b we should actually talk a little bit about Carol Baker and how she kind of ended up in all these Italian movies because um, she had a career. Like I think she had a, she was a nominated for a golden globe. I forget the movie, but she's best known for baby doll. That was her big U S movie. And then towards the, I'd say the end of her sixties run in the United States, she was under contract with Paramount and she wanted to kind of get out of that contract. So she said, fuck this. I'm going to Italy. I've read conflicting things of which movie is actually first, but like it was between Orgasmo and another Giallo called The Sweet Body of Deborah that she had done. Kind of, they both came out the same year, so it's kind of hard to tell which movie came first. Or she could have shot one and then like stepped onto the set of the other one because 
Italians work pretty economically and pretty quickly. But she had a really interesting career. She actually made a lot of trashy movies in America, believe it or not. Like, she was in um, Harlow, which was a Gene Harlow biopic that was like, there was competing Harlow films that came out, and I forget what year it was, but like, she played Gene Harlow in the one that didn't do very well, and it kind of like hurt her career here. So then she's like, you know what? Let's go to Italy. How bad could be? And she kind of had a renaissance because Orgasmo didn't do well in Italy upon its initial release, but it was a huge hit in the rest of the world. Yeah, with a title like that, you know, in that era, and, and you know, it's it's crass. And and you know, in watching the interviews with Umberto, you know, he's he's like, yeah, no, the movie was originally titled Paranoia, and that's what it should have been. And yet, on the other hand. It made a shit ton of money for everybody. So, you know, maybe sometimes the crass decisions do pay pay out, you know. But yeah, she was uh she was also James Dean's girlfriend in Giant. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just it's interesting to look at her because she she I guess she trained with whatever the at, at the actor's studio. Yeah. So there's this seriousness to her acting. But these roles are so sort of exaggerated or the scenarios that are happening that it's kind of a weird mix of the acting style with what's going on. Yeah, it's just something that not overwrought. It's pretty, everything feels pretty stretched in it. And especially, you know, in Orgasmo where she's this, it makes sense in the end, but she's this tormented sort of character who basically gets into a, a, a relationship with these two younger people who start blackmailing her and drugging her and, and forcing her to drink and playing this pop song over and over and over and over again. So it gives her this character to play sort of, a, you know, I'm going crazy, but there's not a lot of subtlety to anything so it's hard to tell how well she plays it i don't know there's one thing in this movie and we kind of talked about on some of the other Lindsay and a few of the other um martino films we were discussing it's like this counterculture class war thing that's underlying and the one takeaway i've gotten from these movies when it comes to counterculture and hippies because there's a lot of hippies and giallos not a lot of people think about it, at least the early like late or late 60s early 70s ones but there's also a lot of class war. Whether Lindsay or even Martino really gave a shit about class war, it is there. Because, like, Peter and Eva are a leftist anti-capitalist, but their whole thing is to drive Carol Baker's character insane so they get her fucking money. Which kind of goes against being an anti-capitalist in a way. Yeah, I don't know if any there's any pure characters in any of these films. Everybody seems pretty motivated by their own uh, wants. <laughs> you know? And and I think, you know, one of the great things about Orgasmo is is the last 10 minutes. That's sort of where uh, the movie sort of lays all the cards on the table and you sort of see, I mean, I guess we can ruin it, but she's sort of driven to madness and, and takes her own life. And then you find out that that was intentional, that she was driven there on purpose and the bad guys think they're going to get away with it. And then there's another twist. So everybody sort of gets their just desserts in the movie. I would. I was shocked. Yeah, I, I was shocked at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the, the, there's a twist, and then there's another twist, and then there's the other twist, and then it just ends with another twist. It's like there's so much misdirection, and it works really well because you see the one thing happen. It's like okay, she's dead, and it's like oh, maybe she's not. There's the lawyer. Lawyer's here to help. Nope, lawyer's not here to help. Up, oh, everyone's getting away. Nope, 
which kind of like the the ending reminds me of a Godard movie called Contempt. Like it's almost the exact ending. I can't remember what year Contempt came out. I think it was it had to have been before it. Someone can look it up and correct me at some point, but it does have a very similar ending to Contempt, just in how it ends, which is a car crash with um Peter and Eva. I think with his movies, there's they're right on the edge of artistry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but they just can't quite escape their roots. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think with Sergio Martino, I think those movies just go a little bit further into pure art because they're so sort of coming from a place of of, of, of either visual or, or sort of sensuality that that feels really sort of driven by a, a, a strong vision. These movies are just kind of anchored a little bit too much to their plots so even though they start getting kind of wild they don't ever quite break free and i think like i could see him recognizing the art in contempt or some of the other cinema happening around that time and and, and adopting it to his own filmmaking but not quite being able to to generate something on his own that reaches that level you know it, it's kind of funny because like you know i don't want to like disparage Lindsay at all but like you know after re-watching all those martino giallos at least through i'd say suspicious death of a minor and taking torso out because torso is like the sore thumb in the martino giallo filmography because it's it doesn't it doesn't operate in the same way the other earlier ones do like um all the colors of the dark or strange vice of mrs ward etc that, like, Martino just, like, he had a style, he's very competent, he made just solid films, which is kind of a rarity if you think about it, especially when he was cranking out movies, like, two, three years sometimes. Lindsay was doing the same, but Lindsay's always had this little bit of a gonzo edge to him. It's in his Eurocrime movies, it's in his Cannibal movies, he just kind of goes, he's a little more bonkers. So, tightness of plot and art, kind of like, I think Lindsay was more being boombastic than, like, artful in some ways. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with it. And, and, and again, like I, I mentioned it earlier is the engineering on these films in terms of how many scenes there are, where are the scenes set, you know, where do the twists come in? Like it's all very clever and, and done economically. And I think that's, you know, part of what makes a filmmaker good or not. Like, are they able to design a movie within the means that they have. And I think for, you know, Orgasmo takes place primarily at that, uh, that villa location, but with, you know, the sort of shot selection and the crash zooms and the, and the sort of camera moves and, and the music choices and the wardrobe and, and sort of the energy that he's bringing to the filmmaking, it never feels dull or you don't feel too claustrophobic there because he's a smart enough filmmaker to know when you need a breath or when he needs to sort of uh, amp things up in just sort of the visuals. And yeah, so it's great. And and like you said, that pop song that plays over and over and over again in the movie, it's a device, it's a storytelling device, but it keeps things moving, even though you've heard it again and again and again. It's, it's you know, it's well done. I'll, I'll say this, like, and this is kind of like, Lindsay was always kind of mean-spirited, and there's always some there's some mean-spiritedness in this movie, but it also, there's, as we talked about, there's definitely style and flair, and I, I, it doesn't quite reach the scope of, like, the psychedelic imagery of, say, All the Colors of Dark or a Lizard and Women's Skin, but it's definitely there, 
and he definitely does a really good job at it. I think because a lot of people come to Lindsay first with the cannibal movies and different different style, different era, different mindset. And I feel like these movies really show you what Lindsay could do as a filmmaker. More so than like outside of maybe his Euro crime. If you haven't checked out his Euro crime stuff yet, Travis, put it on your list. Yeah. Like the tough ones and things like that. They're definitely really batshit crazy, but they're really well made too. Yeah, this this was my my intro to them. You get a sense of time and place from these movies that it's it's like being in a thrift store and finding an old people magazine or look magazine or something and you can just smell the period uh when you open it up and you know that's really exciting because you you look at what a city looks like and how the people dress and how how the crowd sort of moved and i don't know it just has so much personality that i don't know it's something that i crave in the movies that i'm watching now is like does this have personality or is this just a generic fucking piece of uh content as we're closing up talking about orgasm here i just want to throw out some of the taglines it had for the movie this is more for paranoia has how it was released in the u.s and let's see how you feel about them as marketing selling points as a producer who has to think about marketing for not only your films but the films you produce here's the first one rated x because there was no other way yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's the next one. Love is a tool that strips a jet-set widow bear of her morals and her millions. Okay, yeah. The, what, what, what year was this made? 69. Okay, yeah, that's pretty provocative for 69. Here's the last one. Paranoia sucks you into a whirlpool of erotic love. Maybe for cable? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the TV Guide version? I think for 1969 pre-porn, it was pretty edgy, but... Now it's it's soft erotic. Yeah, but I I think that's the thing about it. It's like I can see it with that title change, and with enough of the sort of you know the fact that there's Menage a Trois. The actress who plays Eva looks like a, a proto Angeline Jolie. You know, I could see not that it was on the sort of like like ahead of its time. But I can see why audiences at that time were like, oh, yeah, even though the movie itself isn't that explicit in what it shows. Like it it feels sexy and it and it feel with that title change. I think you could watch this movie without the shame of going to 42nd Street, maybe. Yeah, I didn't. Although in the U.S., didn't they include more nudity to get the X? Okay, well then what the fuck do I know? <laughs> Look, man, you gotta you gotta sell tickets. And if you're gonna put it in a grindhouse, <laughs> there there's a couple ways to do it. Adding nudity is one of them. So one last thing before we move off of Orgasmo. This is something I found interesting that I didn't realize until I rewatched it, and it's not really talked about, I think, anywhere in the features, special features or anything like that, but I saw a credit and I was like, oh shit. So Lindsay's assistant on this film was French filmmaker Bertrand Tavernier who went on the direct Death Watch. I don't know if you've ever seen Death Watch, but it stars Harry Dean Stanton, Harvey Keitel, and Rami Schneider. It's a really, really excellent film, which I don't know if there's a Blu-ray or any way to watch it right now. Last time I saw it, we played at the Egyptian on 35, but I was just like, that's a weird connection. That he... But it also comes from the fact that like a lot of these Italian productions or Spanish productions or French productions were all Euro co-productions. So a lot... Like a lot of the Martino movies were Spanish-Italian co-productions, and some were German-Italian, and some were Fran French-Italian. 
So that's probably how a French filmmaker ended up being Humberto Lindsay's assistant on a giallo. Yeah, I saw an interview with him, uh, and I think he was talking about this one, that there's a screenwriter, a Spanish screenwriter credited to this movie that he never met, he never talked to once, that didn't actually work on it, you know, as far as he was concerned. That happens a lot on these movies that, like, contractually obligated, they have to have, like, a Spanish name or a German name in the credits. And they're like, I don't know who the fuck this guy is, but, like, it got it, it's part of the financing. Well, Colette de Combes, or however you say her last name, the the French actress who played uh, Eva, mm-hmm. worth the price of admission alone. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. You know, you know what's kind of sad? She didn't really do much after it. She was in a couple of, I think, another like I want to say Italian sex comedies and stuff like that. But she didn't really have a big career, and it's kind of a shame because she is really good in this movie. Yeah, she went out on top. Or she can't act at all, and Umberto is an even better director to be able to get a uh, magnetic performance like that. Could be. I don't know. But everyone, pour yourself another J&B, because when we come back, we're going to talk about more Umberto Lindsay and Carol Baker films on the Cinematic Void podcast. A wealthy jet-set widow arrives in Italy searching for thrills, only to fall victim to a diabolical plot against her mind, her millions, her life. Paranoia, starring Carol Baker, giving the outstanding performance of her career as she strips away every inhibition to taste life at its fullest. Co-starring Lou Castell as Peter, the man she loved and learned to hate. With Colette Decombe as Eva, third angle in an evil triangle. Why don't you surprise me and ask to have a drink? A virile young American uses love as a tool to strip her bare of her morals. Her millions could not satisfy her erotic desires, but Peter and Eva could. Lou Castell as Peter and Colette Decombe as Eva are cool perfection as the wild young couple who promise love and deliver paranoia. Carol Baker is breathtaking as the pawn in an extortion game. Paranoia, filmed with a naked frankness that will shock you, but hold you hypnotized until the final powerful ironic scene. Paranoia. Welcome back. We've been talking about Umberto Lindsay and Carol Baker on the Cinematic Boy podcast for January Giallo. Joining us is Travis Stevens, and we're talking about the second collaboration between the two. It is 1969, same year as Orgasmo. It is So Sweet, So Perverse. Not to be confused with another Giallo called So Sweet, So Dead that starred Farley Granger. Because, again, Umberto Lindsay's got to be confusing as fuck. This is the second film that he made with Baker. It was the second film they made in 1969. But this one kind of ties in our whole January Giallo here, because we've been talking about Sergio Martino, and there's a connection to this film. Sergio Martino was actually credited as executive producer on this film. His brother Luciano was the producer, and the screenplay was written by Ernest Gastaldi, who is one of the great Giallo screenwriters of all time. Besides Baker in this movie, the film also stars Jean-Louis Trinat, who is all in all sorts of Euro art house movies, including Z, The Conformist, and something Nick just watched, Koloski's Red. Mm-hmm. 
And it also has Erica Blanc, who was in The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, The Red-Headed Corpse, and Kill Baby Kill, and German actor Horst Frank, who appeared in such giallos as Cat O' Nine Tales, The Dead Are Alive, and I and the Lambert, and Helga Line, who was in My Dear Killer, just putting a, together a little giallo pedigree for this movie. <laughs> the film features also a really stunning score by Riz Ortolani, and if you don't know who Riz is, he's best known as composer of Cannibal Holocaust. And for those you haven't seen it yet, Jean, a rich Parisian socialite, comes to the aid of a frightened young woman, Nicole, who's played by Baker, who's under the domineering control of her abusive boyfriend, Klaus. Although married, Jean develops a romantic relationship with Nicole. However, he may have gotten himself involved in more than he bargained for. It transpires that Jean's wife, Danielle, conspired with Nicole to kill her rich husband, but she begins to feel remorse. Nicole's ingenious plan moves into gear. First impressions of watching this one after seeing Orgasmo, because I assume you just went in order, right, Travis? I did. I did, because I am uh, very conservative when it comes to how I watch movies. So, yeah, so this is next, and immediately, just the opening credit sequence, uh, Jean driving around the city, and you're just like, I forget if, it, if, if it's Rome or whatever, but it's like a convertible sports car, you know, late 60s, driving around handsome dude oh and there's a shotgun in the back <laughs> and it's just these like hard cuts hard cuts over and over again to the shotgun and this like great sort of pop rock uh sort of swinging song and i'm just like yeah this is this is a beautiful uh way to get into a story and then um i don't know if the next scene sort of takes place at a skeet shooting place but it's like skeet shooting man we need to bring that back like just people getting drunk, shooting clay pigeons. It just feels very uh, elegant <laughs> in a way that, uh, you know, we don't see as much anymore. Funny enough, for years, I worked at a trap shooting range as a kid. I like similar to skeet, except like skeet, you shoot yeah. on the downward ascent, trap, you shoot on the upward ascent. I think that's the difference. And I'm surprised I can still hear it because it's just people like a pool firing and like shooting these clay pigeons. That's amazing oh. that you know the difference, that there is a difference between uh trap and in in skeet so what is it in this because they they're kind of looking up right i i trap i you know i think it just depends and i think the italians really didn't give a fuck it's like just throw some clay pigeons and just shoot some shit i think it's a it's another movie that analyzes the audience with the wealth that the characters have in both their cars the wardrobe and where they live and you sort of get this perverse pleasure out of watching them fuck their own lives up. Again with this one, rich assholes who get what's coming to them. And again, the Diaboliques again, threaded in there. I, I, I think it was just like, because that movie was such a huge hit in the 60s. or Did it come out in the 60s or 50s? I can't remember now. 55. 55. I was way off. It was 50s. But it was a thread in a lot of giallos that they just took that plot point. But the thing that makes this one work in a different level... The other thing that makes it work is the screenplay by Gastaldi, who I said is one of the great Giallo writers, because we talked about this with Scott Carlson on the Martino episodes, because um, Gastaldi was a ma master of constructing really tight plots, and basically he set it up that any one of these people could be the fucking killer. And every time you think you figured it out, twist, red herring, all that mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, and it all feels earned. I think Orgasmo, that sort of reveals at the end work because they come so quick and they're so you didn't expect them that they have an impact but on so sweet and so perverse 
I think throughout the process, you're engaged because uh, the way each character is introduced and sort of what you assume their motives are all sort of makes sense. And Klaus, you know, who's this sort of abusive, I don't know if he was her husband or just her lover. You're like, oh, yes, of course he's the bad guy. And then, you know, they reverse that. It just it just really works because of how they're set up and how they're used. That's the thing with Gastaldi wrote a lot of giallos, and he like he was really he did this so so often. In Troy Howard's book, So Deadly, So Perverse, it, um, Gastaldi did the intro, and he talked about the main thing about his giallos, and the thing he hated about other people's giallo was cheating, which was always introducing a character in the, like the last act that was the killer, or you know, like basically like you set up this mystery, you don't know how to get out of it, so you just introduce someone to get yourself out of it, and he didn't believe in that. The only time he kind of got close to cheating, and we talked about this a lot on the Martino episode, was in Torso. Because they introduced the killer in the first act, you forget about him for like most of the movie, and then he gets revealed in the last act. That's the only time Gastardi ever really cheated, but it's not really a cheat because he did introduce the character, at least early on. But like he just, he has a way of just like constructing these things that like no one else really had, I don't know, no one else really did it like that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that works really well about this one is you can understand each of the characters' uh, sort of dilemma and motives. You know, the the relationship between John and his wife, Danielle, it's like, she's beautiful, and he's like, and she doesn't want anything to do with me, so of course I have to go and have these affairs. And it's like, yeah, well, John, maybe if you weren't fucking her friends, she wouldn't you know, be cold to you, you know, but there's these great scenes where they're, they sort of talk about their issues in this like 60s liberated, I don't care way, but they clearly do. And I think that's part of why it, it works. The, the part of why the twists work is because you really do understand where each of these characters are coming from. And they're all cool. Basically, even Klaus the killer, I'm just like, ah, yeah. I mean, just the perfect German for it, you know. (laughs) Again, with this movie, I want to. It's weird to use the term classy for a movie that's kind of sleazy, especially with what happens in it. But like, it it feels like a classy affair, and I think again, it's the jet set vibe and all that stuff. And it's another well-made movie. Like again, Lindsay directs the shit out of the movie, withstanding his tendency to zoom. But Lindsay's gonna Lindsay because he loved that zoom lens. Yeah, I mean, this is true for Orgasmo, but I, I think definitely in uh, So Sweet and So Perverse, the apartment location is so beautiful with these sort of sunken living rooms and bedrooms and uh, how they use the mirrors. It just feels like like you say classy, but it's like, yes, torrid things are happening in these rooms, but the rooms are so beautiful and it's shot so well that it feels classy, even though, you know, a husband's cheating on his wife or, you know, with the double crosses that are revealed afterwards, which I, I liked better in this. I, th- I felt like the sexuality and orgasmo is sort of like uh, exploitive and how provocative it's supposed to be. But I felt like in So Sweet and So Perverse, it's presented much more matter of fact and you know i kind of appreciated that um there's sort of a a bisexuality that's revealed you know later in the movie that i'm like oh that was that's being handled well 
Yeah, Unless it, I misinterpreted the whole movie. <laughs> no, no, you're 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 completely right. That's at least how I saw it too. The other thing we should talk about, obviously, is Carol Baker, who gives a pretty different performance from Orgasmo in this one. I, I feel like she has a little more to do. Where at Orgasmo, she's just like, "Fuck it, I need a drink." And this one, like, she's a little conniving and devious in this one. Yeah, the the character has more to do. There's some uh, subterfuge there. She's got. To play to the person uh to jean and you know the, that's probably more interesting for the actor so yeah she i think it is a better performance but it could also just be a more complicated character i mean it definitely is and like it the one thing i'll say as we talk about all these Lindsay baker collaborations is that she doesn't really do the same performance i mean obviously there's gonna be quirks and things that actor does that are going to carry over in all the movies but like She's not playing the same role each time out. There's there's a little quirk or there's a little nuance to it that like allows her to do something different. It might not be the most expansive, but like I think I'd say this one she had the most to do out of the four. Yeah, and there's a turn in it where she sort of reveals a, a, a more um, conniving side, and that sort of uh, you know she's got a bit of you know fight in her that's a that you're like oh i didn't see that coming because for the first half of the movie she's uh being presented and presenting herself as this sort of victim of this uh evil man and i need you to come and save me from him and then the second half of the movie you find out like oh my god it was all set up and she's actually this really conniving smart uh you know not criminal mastermind or anything but you know criminal and and yeah she handles it well so one last thing before we move on from So Sweet, So Perverse is that Ortolani's score is really great in this one. And it's much better than when Lindsay a few years later recycled it for his one of his other giallos, Seven Bloodstained Orchids. Have you seen Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Travis? Nope. Nick has, and he's not a fan. It's okay. <laughs> he's, he's made much better. And the, the reason why I kind of mention it is because, like, there's a point post the Carol Baker era that, like, there was a decline in how he was making his movies. And, like, I... That's what I'm wondering. I know these weren't, like, big-budget movies. They're not, like, obviously Star Wars or, like... I guess that period would be, like, a musical or something like that. And they're, like, you know... They're essentially dramas. But they spent money and they had production value. Where some of the later Lindsay stuff just felt like... Here's your camera. Here's ten bucks. Make your fucking movie. And then it's just like, alright, I gotta get everything. Zoom, 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 zoom. <laughs> and where, where it's like, I feel like with all of these, it's just like... It's just... He was masterful in his direction. And I know we talked about this before, but it's just it's just an interesting like counterpoint that like the same man that made this movie made Campbell Ferox or Nightmare City, which are like completely batshit insane movies. And this is very calculated, you know, there's a like you said, there's a class to it, even though the material may not be able to sort of lift off much beyond its sort of, uh, you know, pulpy roots, you know, his his approach to it certainly gives it a veneer of class you know and and i think it's great i think that it must have been nice for him to have a relationship with carol baker that the more they work together they sort of know each other's strengths and weaknesses and then they can sort of have fun and do different stuff uh in each movie and sort of push it further so we're going to take another quick break but when we return we're going to talk more about Lindsay and carol baker here on the cinematic void podcast commit yourself to an experience of absolute evil. A journey of fear beyond your nightmares. From earthly torment to hellish horror. 
eyeball will grab you. Suspiria won't let you go. Eyeball and Suspiria, the ultimate in total terror. Rated R. Welcome back. We've been talking about Umberto Lindsay and Carol Baker here on the Cinematic Void podcast for January Giallo, and we're joined by our good friend Travis Stevens. We're moving on to the third collaboration between the two. It was released a year later after Orgasmo and So Sweet, So Perverse in 1970. It is A Quiet Place to Kill, which was also released as Paranoia, just like Orgasmo was, which back in the day led to much confusion between the two films, especially during the whole VHS bootleg market. Because people would be like, oh yeah, you got a copy of Paranoia? Cool. And it's like, wait, this is not the Paranoia I want to watch. I think still to this day, people get the two movies confused. And to make things even more confusing is, Lindsay also made a movie called An Ideal Place to Kill, a.k.a. Oasis of Fear, which people confuse with A Quiet Place to Kill. Because this is the one tying all these movies. They all have ridiculous titles. They're confused with other films. And once again, this film obviously stars Baker, but it reunites her with her co-star from The Sweet Body of Deborah, Jean Sorel, who also appeared in um, Lucio Fulci's Perversion Story. It also features Anna Proclamer and Mariana Coffa. And for those of you who haven't seen it, Helen, a race car driver whose life, both personal and professional, is on a rapid downfall, is invited by her ex-husband, Maurice's new wife Constance, to stay at their plush estate. The two women form a bond, and not long before their mutual dislike for their husband culminates in a plan to kill him. The plan to murder Maurice on a sailing trip goes awry when Constance is accidentally killed. So Helen and her ex seize the moment to dispose of Constance's corpse at sea. But when the dead woman's daughter Susan arrives, the young lady begins to suspect that her mother has been murdered by them. A lot of people consider this the weakest of the four movies. But what was your feeling on watching this one, Travis? Well, I definitely don't think it's the weakest. Because uh, the movie opens up, at least for me, the movie opens up with a theme song uh, with a lyric, you represent all the things I hate in a man. So automatically, that's a win. Uh, and and after an opening scene where Carol Baker is suddenly this uh, uh, sort of jet set race car driver, like driving an F1 car around that crashes, which is handled really, really economically. After that, she gets discharged from the hospital and the doctor's like, what are the rules? And she's like, no smoking no love making and no alcohol and he's like all right you can have one of them what's it gonna be and she's like i'll take the alcohol so that's win number two <laughs> and then over the course of the movie uh she does all of them i'm not sure if she smokes but she certainly makes a lot of love so yeah no this this one probably has more of the the sort of euro scope than the others like the others are pretty contained but this one with the race car aspect there's a i I forget where it's set but there's um sort of a a mountain seaside road into the the primary location that that features a lot so you just get a sense of europe in this that's even grander and more playboy than some of the other the other ones so and also a quiet place to kill is a great fucking title so that's a win too so four wins means this is not the weakest of the of the, of the set and also do just want to say uh seven films i hadn't seen these before that box set and the box set's incredible like the movies look good they sound great the supplements are fantastic so it was a great way for me to learn about them. you hear that david gregory i need some royalty but no i'm kidding but <laughs> but i actually agree with you like 
looking research wise, people kind of like dismiss this one. And a lot of them was like, well, you know, Carol Baker is a race car driver. I'm like, fuck that. That's a cool quirk. How many like <laughs> female race car drivers were there in 1970? It just sort of operates on its own logic. And the logic seems to be, again, the rich are living a life you can't even imagine. So it's like she crashes her F1 car. She gets discharged from the hospital. Her ex-husband that she tried to kill invites her to whatever, you know, resort town. She arrives there and meets him inside like a fucking giant cave that is also like a discotheque or a bar or something. And, oh, you're here. You've arrived. And here's the judge from the area. And here's the whatever, the guy who always films stuff on his Super 8. And I'm your good-looking uh, uh, ex-husband, Jean Sorrell. It just has – it doesn't make a lick of sense. But you're like, yeah, I'm sure that's what it was like. You know, because it just sort of moves on its own logic. And it's, it's that's rad. I have a term for it. And I've seen other people use it. The term is giallo logic, where it's like things that would not be acceptable in the real world, but work perfectly normal in a giallo. And like even Gastaldi kind of falls into it. But like, I think it's a beautiful thing because I kind of want to live in a world of giallo logic where it's just like, oh, let's just make this poor choice and see what happens. And then you get to have fun and then you might end up dead or something. But like the, the stream of conscious of these movies is really, really unique and not just the Lindsay ones, but like a lot of giallos and like, yeah, sometimes it get confusing and convolted, but like, fuck that. It's, it's fun. That's, that's the main thing. Like I'd rather have something be convolted and weird and all over the place. That's fun. than like something that's straight ahead and boring as fuck. Yeah, and I think, you know, we we in talking about So Sweet, So Perverse, like we were saying, oh, part of the reason why it works is because the, 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 the script, you sort of understand each of these characters' motives. And I would say A Quiet Place to Kill has just as many twists, but they don't work quite as well <laughs> because you, <laughs> you kind of are like, wait, what? And, and But it keeps throwing them at you. And keeps introducing them. The current wife of of uh, Helene's ex uh, husband invites her in, you know, come and stay, and then confides in her like, "Oh, you know, Jean, he's such a playboy. He's getting bored with me. We need to kill him because neither of us can can say no to his uh, animal magnetism, and we both love him. The only way we're going to get free is if if we kill him." And I will actually say another win about this movie, which is clearly why it's not the weakest, there's a spear gun in it. And I feel like we don't see spear guns in movies enough anymore. Because when I was growing up, I feel like spear guns, you know, featured in films pretty consistently. And there's a spear gun in this and a great little gag with it. So yeah, but but yeah, back to the point of like, characters are, and their motives in this are a little more cartoonish and 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 maybe a little less realistic in how they reveal them and how, how those um, uh, motives are, are implemented, but it's still fun. Absolutely. And now the twist, because the first twist is the, you know, the, when they go out the sea and they think they're going to kill all Jean Sorrell's character. And like the, the current wife is the one who dies and they dump her body. It's really kind of a night nail biter, especially when they come back where like almost immediately her daughter shows up and just says, fuck you, you killed my mom, and I'm gonna prove it. And there's the shit with the hat and all that stuff, and, like, Carol Baker's just, like, sweating it. 
And you can tell, like, it. it's a really great bit of performance. Like, okay, gotta act cool. Gotta act cool. Shit, she's on to us. Gotta still act cool. And it's just like... And them trying to act cool, at least Carol Baker's character to act cool, it's like she's giving away herself, you know? Yeah, and, and, and you know, to its credit, it sets her up as uh, a character who doesn't have any options. So I, I forget the list of jobs she had uh, before she was a race car driver, whether it was she was like a Renaissance woman. She was a model. She was a this. She was a that. And but basically had like failed her way out of all of those jobs and then crashed her race car. And, uh, so she gets invited to this villa and the, the current wife of her ex-husband uh, settles all of her debts. So she's basically got no other options. So when the, when the current wife's like, Hey, we need to do this. She kind of boxes her in. And I think the movie does a good job of setting up. Like she kind of has to go with all this stuff because what else is she going to do? And then when that the twist happens, is she going to get away with it or not? And then there's you know some additional twists that that come up. Oh, we're going to talk about the other twist. And I hate to spoil for people, but Jesus Christ, when I saw this one, I was like, this is ballsy even for a giallo. When the daughter that's accusing Jean Sorrell and Carol Baker's character of like killing her mom, there's a scene where Carol Baker walks in and Jean Sorrell's fucking the daughter, like just flat out. And it's just like holy shit. And it's like, granted. I agree with you, this is a lot of, like, throw the twist at the wall and see if it sticks. But, like, I didn't see that coming. And I've seen a lot of these movies, and I should have expected it, but I didn't. And I was just like, oh, shit, this movie's this movie's getting real. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess, uh, or as the daughter says, she's making it. She walked in on us, and we were making it. I'm like, yeah, that's 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 dope. But, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly in, in Knife of Ice, right, there's a little kid character. I mean, obviously, this this girl is in college, but... I think you get accustomed to seeing these secondary characters who come in to move the plot in one direction or another. So that one was a, a, a bigger surprise because normally they're not, they don't become such a key component of the plot. And, and she does. You can look at the scenes before that, that that, that uh, college age daughter was in where she had sort of you know, been prodding at Carol Baker's character. And then the scenes after that, she becomes even more important to, to sort of what happens in the story. So yeah, that, that, that twist in that character was kind of interesting, but at that point in the movie, so much crazy shit has happened that it's just sort of like you get whiplash trying to keep track. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I like about this movie, it starts with a car crash. It ends with a car crash. Yeah. And again, another thing we don't see in movies Real cars going over cliffs. Uh, this one, <laughs> you know, the car doesn't explode when it lands, but it's a huge cliff, and you get to at least watch it tumble down for a long time. And and I did personally find the uh, the racing along the um, the seaside mountain roads uh, terrifying. I thought they handled it really well. It kind of reminded me, and I'm going to mention Hitchcock. It kind of reminded me of some of like you know to catch a thief or even the drunk Cary Grant scene in North by Northwest after they drug him up and he's like trying to get away. It's a little bit that it it also fits into that whole Jet Set vibe because again this movie's you know rich assholes who deserve what they got coming to them. You know what's interesting about this one is maybe the male lead is a little more sympathetic. Right? Orgasmo, uh, the men are assholes. So sweet, so perverse. The man's an asshole. At least I think, you know, like I'm trying to think. Maurice is 
Is he an asshole? I'm trying to think. He is. It's. It's. I think the biggest comparison is maybe George Hilton in a lot of those Martino giallos, where Hilton like seems like a suave, nice guy who can also be a fucking piece of shit and. It's where Gene Sorrell kind of falls in that, but the problem with Gene Sorrell is, like, he's so charismatic that you really can't hate him. And I think it's just, like, it's just his personality shines through above the role, and maybe he's supposed to be a complete asshole, but it's just, like, I kind of like that character. No, you nailed it. Like, he is likable from the first time you see him, where it's this, like, like this, not boyishness, but there's just something about him that you're, 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 you feel warmly about. And... You know, he's on a boat. There's two women fighting over a spear gun on which one's going to kill him. And yeah, I mean, he 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 uh, turns around and stabs one of the women and, you know, wraps an anchor around her and throws her in the ocean. But you still feel like he's the one who got wronged. It's an incredible thing. And I'll say this. Giallos do get away with doing this with, like, problematic characters. Like, I, I brought this up in the Martino episode. We mentioned what have they done to Solange and Fabio Testi's character, who's a college professor who is cheating on his wife with one of his students. After the student is murdered at this hidden love apartment that he got for her, he gets back with his wife and his wife's fine with it. Europe, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it. that's part of that giallo logic. It's like, sure, you're cheating on your wife, but now that your side piece is dead, hey, it's fine. Get back together happily ever after or something. It's fair to say, uh, you know, we you experience the art on its terms. Now, in hindsight, it's like, no, clearly all these people were uh, real assholes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed this one. And, like, I, I feel like sometimes people see movies at the wrong time or they, like, they get stuck. Because I think Orgasmo is probably the most marquee of the four because it was the easiest one to see because there's 35 millimeter prints out. And stuff like So Sweet, So Perverse, I don't even think had a real legit U.S. release. I know I know this movie did, and I I can't remember if it was released Paranoia here or elsewhere. I mean, again, title confusion. But this one was really surprising, and it's like, you know, I liked the Carol Baker race car driver twist. I liked her arc, and the only thing I didn't like, and you mentioned it earlier when we talked about Skeet and Trap and that shooting, is the use of real pigeons for pigeon shooting. Yeah, and it gets even worse in uh, in Knife of Ice with the bu- yeah. the bullfighting. But Lindsay kind of went down that route, especially in his cannibal movies, because like you know, it he kind of leaned hard into animal atrocities, and I I don't like that stuff. And it's like you know, I can respect a movie like Cannibal Holocaust for the artistic aspect, but I'm not gonna watch it again because it's like I don't need to see animals die on camera. I I like my movies being fantasy. That's just me. The mechanics of the exploitation are so laid bare with that, you know, oh, we can justify characters acting a certain way because it's this genre of film, or we can justify, you know, nudity or sexuality because it's this type of film. And I think with the, with the sort of animal uh, cruelty, you're, you can't like, you just can't let it slide anymore. But at the time, you know, it probably seemed like just as marketable an element as a bare ass. I mean, to be honest, in Italy, that shit was like a big crime. Because I know Diodato got in trouble for the animal cruelty. He also got in trouble because, uh, for Cannibal Holocaust, I should say. Because he had all the actors, like, pretend they were dead and disappear. So, like, they thought it was like a snuff film. 
And then I think of Lucio Fulci when he did um, A Lizard and Women's Skin. There's a scene that um, effects artist Carlo Rambaldi put together these vivisected dogs and the one the dream sequence. And they had to go in court and set up the effects so they didn't go to jail. So Italy was actually really hard on this stuff. But somehow Umberto, like, maybe because he's like, oh, I just paid for stock footage. But it's just like, it, it's the one nasty aspect. And, and it's weird because I can look past a lot of the problematic and, like, it stuff because, like, it's of its time. But animal yeah. cruelty is the one thing where it's like, you know, a lot of filmmakers do it. Godard did it in Weekend, and um, Bergman tried to do it. Actually, he might have done it in that movie he did with David Carradine, where David Carradine was like, fuck you, because he wanted David Carradine to shoot a horse on camera, and David Carradine's like, nope. I think it's The Serpent's Egg is the movie. Yeah, I mean, like you say, it's it's of its time. You know, with the, with the live pigeons, it's like, yeah, and that was the reality of that uh economic class that's what they did for fun and it makes sense you know it's a movie you don't actually need to do it not to change subjects but you had sort of talked about how these movies were received and and sort of the awareness of of each one and i could see like orgasmo is a much simpler um sort of concept which is like a wealthy woman is seduced by the youth who are you know, forcing her to do wild and crazy things. Like that's a very simple sort of concept for a movie to wrap your, your head around and sort of market at the time. And so sweet, so perverse is a more complicated plot and a quiet place to kill is a really fucking complicated plot. <laughs> so how do you, you know, like what were the log lines on this one or the, the tag lines on this one? I, they're ac- I actually couldn't find any on this one. Like, I think Orgasmo probably out of the four had the biggest U.S. release. Because I think yeah. it definitely had more of an exploitation, like, you know, marketing. Because it played 42nd Street. It probably played drive-ins. It played grindhouses across America. And I think these other three didn't really... I think by the time they were coming out, things were getting edgier. Because you got to think in the early 70s, going into the mid-70s, you had porn. So, like, the eroticism in this movie were pretty mundane at that point. Violence was picking up because then you had stuff like, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Last House on the Left were on its way. And and in by this point, maybe because it was their third movie together, maybe she wasn't interested in this or he wasn't interested. But, you know, less nudity, less sort of uh, overt or certainly not indulging in as much sexuality as the other ones. Although interesting, like doesn't this don't they recycle that pop song from Orgasmo? in a scene in this one they go to a nightclub and i think it's the same song that's playing and it's like the same band like i don't know if he recycled footage and just shot new footage of her and like uh uh helene and jean and maurice go to a nightclub when they're together i can't remember if it's the same song but if it's not it's probably something that's similar because you know a lot of italian filmmakers even like great composers like ennio marconi recycled cues and other yeah. movies and stuff like that it you know they kind of went back to the wheelhouse like well if it ain't broke might as well do the yeah. same thing <laughs> yeah well it, it definitely feels like a uh we need a we need a we need a nightclub scene here and it feels like a roger corman sort of like go in the vaults and grab some of that 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 footage and we'll recycle it that's a pretty good way of putting it so, I, you got any more closing thoughts on A Quiet Place to Kill before we move on, Travis? I think it's a winner. I agree. But with that, we're going to take another break. But when we return, more Baker, more Lindsay, 
and more Travis Stevens on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Unbearable suspense that keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into cinematness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinematist Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. We have been talking about Umberto Lindsay and Carol Baker here on the Cinematic Void Podcast with our friend Travis Stevens for January Giallo. We're going to now talk about their last collaboration together. It's from 1972. It is Knife of Ice, a.k.a. Silent Horror. Basically, there was a two-year break between the last time Lindsay and Baker had worked together. And this was the second Giallo that Lindsay made this year. He also made Seven Bloodstained Orchids, one of Nick's favorites. The film... Also stars Evelyn Stewart, a.k.a. Ida Galley, who is in Martino's Case of the Scorpion's Tale, and Fulci's The Psychic. And also features George Renald, who appeared in a ton of Jallos, and I'm just going to name them all because every single one of these fucking movies are a banger. <clears throat> he was in Perversion Story, A Lizard in Women's Skin, Death Walks on High Heels, All the Colors of Dark, The Case of the Bloody Iris, and Eyeball. So basically, if you want your Giallo to be a smash hit and well-loved, put George in your movie, because he's... Basically, outside the Argento ones, he's in all the fucking bangers. And for those of you who haven't seen it, a 13-year-old Martha Caldwell, played by Baker, not when she's 13, but later in the movie, witnesses the death of her parents in a terrible railway accident. Barely surviving the tragedy herself, Martha was struck mute due to the shock. Now as an adult, she lives with her Uncle Ralph in a Spanish countryside. Martha's cousin Jenny arrives to be with the family, but is quickly stabbed to death. It appears there's a sex maniac roaming the countryside, killing pretty young girls. The already traumatized Martha seems likely to be the next victim, but the case turns out to be far more complicated than it would first seem. And before I get to your thoughts on it, I gotta say, poor Evelyn Stewart, she can't catch a fucking break in these giallos. Like, basically she gets off pretty early on, and she's a terrific actress, but yeah, she has a couple scenes and see ya. But that's, that's giallo for you. And, admittedly, Lindsay said his influence on this film was that Mia Farrow starring See No Evil, because I think Mia Farrow was blind in that movie, so Carol Baker's mute in this one, because Italians, even back then, liked the chase trends. So, what was your thoughts on this one, Travis? Well, my glib answer is I've seen the movie twice and still can't follow it. <laughs> <laughs> My, my second glib answer is there is no knife of ice in the movie. I think the movie would be better if somebody was carrying around a, a knife made of ice. But, you know, more seriously, I think it's really fucking tough to make a movie where your lead character either can't see or can't hear. And in this this one, I think part of why it's not engaging is because the disability of the lead character, you just don't ever feel it. It's not anchored around her or centered around her experience. So you keep cutting away to other characters doing other shit. And you you step outside of the thing about the the concept that should be compelling or terrifying. So 
yeah, it it I just I think on a conceptual level, the movie just doesn't work as well as some of the others. And I, I think Umberto even said that this one didn't quite come together. And I I think it's that's why he didn't have a really good year for Giallo's because like he pretty much kind of disparaged Seven Bloodstained Orchids too. He's like, eh, the movie's okay. Plot was a little too confusing. Whatever. I I think this was getting to the point where he was starting to do a lot more you know, his Eurocrime stuff, which, like, allowed him to just go batshit crazy. And, like, Giallo's, at least at this point, this is pretty subdued. Like, this is, besides um, Seven Bloodstained Orchids and even though the killer has red gloves, Eyeball, which are the only ones where he has black glove killers in it, or at least sort of, you know. The, even this black glove killer isn't really a traditional, it's, it, it doesn't quite work, to be honest. And, like, I like this movie, but... As a like Black Love Killer Giallo, it it's not top tier. It's like Sizzler. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot, lot offered. It's at a good price point. You have something for everyone, but just not of the quality that's probably gonna be satisfying. There's this subplot with a sex crazed killer that's sort of introduced with these sort of uh, you know artifacts in the eyeballs that get this sort of giallo like ah crazy eye that you're like ah that just peters out like a like a <laughs> fucking a fart <laughs> like it just is <laughs> i just narratively it it sort of tries to amp up stuff that the the the, the structure of the script and it just doesn't support in a meaningful way so you kind of have these elements that are trying to do exciting things and they they do for a moment but as the movie progresses it just sort of it, it crumbles i i feel uh and and carol baker you know here's a character that doesn't speak the entire movie i think she she uh i don't know if she screams in a couple of scenes but for the most part is silent and I mean, that's a pretty bold choice for your fourth movie with an actor. And if you're going to do that, I think you would you you would imagine that they would have designed, you know, written a script that really made the most of that. And and it kind of feels like um, that didn't happen. But I could also see them being excited about it because they, they had worked together so much like, oh, this time you're going to. Uh, play somebody who, who can't speak isn't that going to be exciting so i could i could see it seeming exciting but you know whatever I, i'm sounding like i hate it i don't hate it i just don't I'll, I'll say this i don't know if you've seen the trailer to knife ice the trailer is really fucking cool it's got psychedelic imagery like as knife ice appears there's like skulls there's like <laughs> like really color trippy like you know italian giallo trailers like the trailer is really good no one really talks, and it's just music. It's one of those where I think when it got released in the U.S., there's someone was supposed to do a voiceover over it, and they're just like, "Ah, fuck it, just leave the music on." I did think an interesting thing was um, uh, Carol Baker's character paints in this one, and she also painted in Orgasmo, so that was a nice sort of correlation. And maybe that of the time was a designation of like a wealth, like somebody so wealthy that they can just sort of afford to just paint as a leisure activity but 
I like to imagine that, you know, Carol Baker was like, oh, I think my character is a painter and that there was a conversation that, you know, it was an important uh, uh, character trait for her. The thing I take away from this one, there's definitely less money at this period for Lindsay for these movies. It, it, it doesn't feel as classy. It doesn't have like the jet set vibe. It, it feels a little more, I don't want to say dirty, but it feels a little more rough around the edges. And I think, you know, it's like, granted, as I said, I don't think these movies had a ton of money, but I feel like his budgets were getting smaller because economically it's like, you need to churn this fucking thing out less money because there's only a certain, I guess there's a certain box office plateau they were able to get like worldwide with them. As a giallo, I think it's okay. I don't think it's great. I think, you know, there's a lot of twists and I think they sort of work, but like it's, it's okay. It's not great. It's not good. And the one big takeaway from this comparing to Seven Bloodstained Orchids that also came out that year was like, it's a little more subtler. So that's the callback. Like the one, the ones he made with Carol Baker are definitely less violent or overtly violent. There's not a lot of stabbing. There's not a lot of gore. Cause if you watch Seven Bloodstained Orchids, there's just blood, there's violence, there's throat cutting. It gets fucking nasty. And this one's still kind of, I don't know if restrains the word I'm looking for, but maybe in comparison, it's a little more restrained for the bulk of it. But then there are these flashes of violence or, or, or um, gruesomeness. So there's the, the character is sort of been in a state of quasi shock since her, her parents died in a train crash and her dad threw her from the train right before the crash. <laughs> but throughout the movie, and this ties into sort of the plot. She sees flashes of uh, of a, a bullfight that she went to with her friend, I guess, her cousin. Something like that. Uh, yeah. And so th- that's real footage. It seems to be real footage of a real bullfight, which is, you know, kind of in that sort of uh, exploitation manner, just graphic and gross. But then there's this little, little girl who, uh, like, finds a cat, like her cat like steps in the blood of of uh, a victim and this little girl's playing with it and finds blood on the cat's foot and you're like oh that's kind of gross but then later on the cat is dead and like just this like stuffed cat with like just blood up its guts that you know there are these flashes of like huh something exciting's happening but the rest of the movie is not <laughs> that so it, it's even more jarring i think the other thing this movie does is there's it kind of shoehorns in with the sex maniac was trying to tie it into like satanic cult, which I think of this time, pretty close to the same era this came out, you had Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling that had a little bit of that in the background. Like one of the red herrings was that there's a lady that was a practicing like witchcraft or satanic stuff. And there's a little bit of that in this. And like obviously all the colors of dark has a big occult like background to it. And it doesn't really do anything with it. It's just like, Oh, Satan, throw that shit in there. Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, it's as if some pages had fallen out of one book and somebody just stuffed them into another book and you're just reading, <laughs> you know, because it doesn't really go anywhere in, in, in a meaningful way. And, and, and I think, you know, it sounds like, you know, we're being really harsh on this film, but I think it is part of the reason why the film is not as effective as the others, because at its core, this should be a movie about a mute woman who's being terrorized. And in the end, you find out she's actually the killer. 
and maybe she's not mute or something like that. So anytime you step away from that to have these little subplots or secondary characters that don't pay off towards that original concept, you're wasting time. You're wasting the audience's sort of engagement and you're and you're dry humping them and and it's not satisfying. I think that's like if there had been I'd say a more coherent script. I mean, they, I don't I really don't know how like Italy like cranked out their scripts because a lot of these guys signed their names to tons of stuff. And like I feel like some of this was written on the fly. They might have had an outline and they're just like, let's just figure this out as we're shooting it. I, I don't know for sure if that's the way because like there's definitely a slapdashness to this one, unlike the previous three. And I again I think it's just like that's where Lindsay was at this point's career. Like the probably the best movie he made that year, which also deals with animal violence, is Man from Deep River, which, you know, I I can't recommend it because of the animal stuff, but I think it's a really good, like, adventure cannibal movie. And it was like, the first of the Italian cannibal cycle. But I feel like at this point in his career, he didn't really give a shit for the material. And it shows a little bit. And I think there's still good things. I think the twist of Carol Baker actually being the killer is good, but it is pretty telegraphed. And I think early on he started like, oh yeah, she's the one fucking doing it. Yeah, I think my favorite thing about the movie is there's a uh, Italian mailman who delivers the mail in one shot that is the most Italian-looking mailman you could ever imagine. He's got a mustache, a cigarette in his mouth, his shirt's unbuttoned. He come, he walks onto the scene, hands a letter, and then walks off, and you're like, well, that's a fucking Italian mailman. And I really appreciated that. Those, those sometimes end up being my favorite character. When... Scott Carlson was on, we were talking about the Martino movies, he was talking about, like, milk delivery guys, because there's two in different, like, Martino movies. And it's like, my favorite one is the guy in Torso, because he basically gives away that, um, Susie Kendall character is hiding in the villa, and the killer finds out because the fucking milk band tips him off. It's like, here's milk! Oh yeah, there's someone else in there, kind of thing. And I kind of appreciate that in Italian films. Like, just people that just walk on, do one weird quirky thing or not even a weird quirky thing just do a thing do their job and then it's just like huh kind of want to see where this guy's going kind of want to see where else he's delivering mail because he might be delivering mail to other like villas where there's killers running loose i hadn't thought about this but if these are films that are sort of focused on the the evil rich how the sort of uh you know blue collar characters are utilized it's probably interesting. And, and, you know, I think Knife of Ice, there's there's housekeepers, right? And Quiet Place to Kill, I think, also had some housekeeper characters yeah. that are pretty important in it. So that's somebody smarter than than me could probably watch them from that perspective of how these sort of servants, you know, sort of uh, interact with these rich assholes and move the story forward. Because if you leave it up to the rich assholes, they're just going to sit around, drink, and jet set, and not really move the plot around too much. But it, it's the working class that makes the giallo work, goddammit. Yeah, and maybe it's intentional. I mean, like, not to go back to the, to the scotch, but the size of the pitchers of alcohol in these movies and the amount that they pour, maybe it's bad acting where they're, the actors are just pouring too much into the glass – but maybe it's intentional to really just show that they don't need to be sober for anything. It's just a total life of pleasure where they have no responsibilities. That's how wealthy they are. I will say this. I don't, 
I don't absolutely hate Knife of Ice. I think it's decent. I don't like the bullfighting stuff, obviously. But I think if you're if you're running out of giallos and you want to see something that's like middle of the road, decent, worth checking out, Knife Ice it is. It's obviously, I, I think we all agree here, it is the weakest of the four in the Lindsay-Baker collaboration. Yeah, but it has the best mailman. It has the best mailman, and it does have a good title that unfortunately does not deliver. God damn it, if it had a knife ice. It seems like they could have worked it in with all the other random plot elements they had in the film. A fucking killer walking around with a cold hand and a dripping weapon it would have been dope. I mean, they could have had an ice sculpture that the killer breaks the like knife off of and stabs someone. I mean, I don't know. It's what, a perfect what? murder weapon. They wouldn't know how the person died. So with that left. said, Travis, what are you going to do your giallo? I like to think that every movie I do is, is a poorly executed camouflage giallo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I look forward to all your films, Travis, and... Maybe you can finally rectify Knife Ice by having a literal Knife Ice in one of your movies. <laughs> now now I feel like I kind of have to, and what a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't, I, there's a stab wound, and there's a lot of water. What happened here? <laughs> yep, it's, it, somebody smarter than me could do do something great with it. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take one last break here, but when we return, it's going to be Rewatch and Listen on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Hail, fellow gentlemen of the road. Oh, oh God, look what's turned oh. up. My apologies, madam. I am happy to report that Lady Luck has smiled on me today. I am a bottle of scotch. Not simply scotch, my Lancastrian friend. A mingling with the finest malts from the house of Justerini and Brooks. The names of no less than eight illustrious monarchs grace the label. Oh, oh fine blend. Ah, oh, yes, very good. I might even shoot down to the country for the weekend, do a spot of poaching. What? International elevators are up. Uh, you should take the Times, you know. Much better coverage. I say, Bertie, what's your golf handicap? No clubs, old boy. Mustache. Appointment with my tailor. J&B Rear, the Scotch, with a touch of class. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to. And since Travis is our guest, you get to go first. So Travis, tell me, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? Uh, currently reading uh, Duchamp, a biography on uh, the artist Marcel Duchamp. Uh, I really enjoyed um, the film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom that's on uh, Netflix. I had never seen the play before. Uh, the performances in that movie are absolutely ferocious. The execution is, uh, it, it is just a combustible film uh, filled with um, dignity and anger in a way that I, I don't know if I've ever seen before. I think those are the two most recent things that I was uh, uh, sort of blown away by. Anything you've been listening to? Yes, Somerset Thrower has an album that came out this year called Paint My Memory that uh, for a 90s guy like me feels like uh, a lost album. 
It is just pure melody, two melodic guitars, a singer who can fucking sing. And uh, I haven't dove too deep into the lyrics, but they certainly sound important. Sounds like he cares about what he's singing about. So uh, that that works for me. And then I, I just feel like not to hint at stuff to come, but I spent the last month uh, reading a lot of books about female surrealist painters, which had sort of done all this great work, but were only considered uh, to be the girlfriends of important male artists or muses. So that's been a real, uh, real eye opener for for me. Um, uh, Leonora Carrington and Dorothea Tannen are two of them. Caddy Horna is another one. So just sort of uh, for people out there who are who are looking for like a missing piece of uh, art history, uh, there's a lot of good books that are coming out now about that that also sounds like it could be the backbone of a plot of a giallo too female surrealist painter yeah i definitely uh one of the <laughs> things i appreciated about the umberto Lenzi was oh look she's a painter and actually a good one um but yeah i think there was this not to bring it back into that but i think women in art women could do art as a hobby but would were not considered real artists and there was this sort of period from the 50s until you know the 90s that that was the case and and sort of all simply not because the work wasn't good but simply because people didn't frame the work as important and now uh that seems to be changing so it's really exciting to to have you know just a huge amount of artwork coming in that's getting attention that it should have gotten when it was made there was a uh a female sort of sculpture mixed media artist named uh, Eva Hesse who has a documentary that's that's out now she was brought to my attention because uh somebody had said hey i think possessor the new brandon cronenberg film was kind of influenced by this this artist's work um because she works a lot with sort of twisting and bending latex and stuff like that so a lot of the sort of tactile texture quality of possessor that gives it that sort of like analog sci-fi feel uh that's her work has definitely gonna have to check that out all right nick what have you been reading watching and or listening to all right uh, as far as listening goes i've been listening to the new frozen soul crypt of ice record on uh century media um frozen soul is a death metal band from texas um, I think I saw them at the Five Star downtown, probably 2018. They're just heavy as shit, just slow caveman death metal. Uh, the new stuff is obviously being on Century Media, a little more produced and uh, kind of stepped up their game a little bit, but it's sick. So I haven't really been reading because I've been watching so many movies, um, but I'll just throw a couple at you. I just saw for the first time Picnic at Hanging Rock from 1975 uh, by Peter Weir. Uh, he went on to do uh, the Truman Show, of all things. But a girls' school goes on a field trip uh, to Hanging Rock. It uh, takes place in 1900. Um, they kind of play it up as it's a true story, but I, I don't think it is. But maybe it's kind of an urban legend in Australia. Uh, Australian film, by the way. But the, uh, some girls on the field trip disappear, and people's watches are stopping, and a bunch of weird stuff happens. And uh, I think it's super sick, super beautiful film. Um, yeah, great. Uh, I also just watched uh, Come and See from 1985, a uh, Russian war film that's just absolutely fucking devastating. 
I'm sure you guys know know of that one as well. We, yeah, we just watched that for the first time like a week or so ago, and how devastating and 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 sort of unflinching a look it is. Um, my partner made the comment. She's like, it was really refreshing to see a movie where the Nazis were not presented as some sort of inhuman uh, machine, but mm-hmm. were presented as a bunch of fucking pigs, you know, just like uh, monstrous little humans at their worst, not uh, not just this like finely tuned machine. I was like, yeah, that, that movie really does show the sort of capability humans have for this to happen. So where Josh Ethier is really happy that you're talking about come and see. Nice. When we when we screened it at the Egyptian, Josh was there and he's like, I'll pay fifty bucks if you let me intro it. And I was like, dude, just come up and talk about it. It's like <laughs> it's like I'm just gonna do an intro, but if you want to sell this fucking depressing, beautiful work of art, I'm gonna let you. And like he was he was smiling a lot, which is a lot to say for it's not really a smiling movie, but like <laughs> Josh Josh likes some fucking nihilistic, sad, dark, depressing, epic movies. Uh, I didn't know what I was getting myself into, so I, I kind of can't wait to see it again. Uh, and and lastly, uh, I I just rewatched. I've I've probably watched this three times this year. Uh, I've absolutely fallen in love with this movie. Is uh, Safe by Todd Haynes, uh, who just did that Darkwater movie that I I think is also really great and kind of related uh, because they both deal with um, the the effects that that our environment kind of has on us. And so she, uh, Julianne Moore is the main character in the film and, uh, she, she gets sick or at least she perceives that she's getting sick and, and, you know, none of the doctors can figure out whether she's allergic or what's going on and very anxious film for sure. It's very fuck. It's, it's, it's fucking insane. I love it. I mean, Uh, it's, it's amazing that the movie he made right before that was his, um, all Barbie doll, Karen Carpenter story, superstar. Huh? Like he went from that, which you can't legally see Superstar because the the Carpenter family had that block forever. But like, it's the only movie where I've seen someone use the doll motif and actually sell it, where you actually give a fuck about a Barbie doll that represents Karen Carpenter. It's Todd Haynes is I don't want to say underrated because he's made some pretty big and like successful films. But like, I think that and Safe because I remember like Safe has this bit where she gets the couch with the little red dot on it. And that's the beginning of, like, disruption and, like, the the dread and the fall into disease. Like, I haven't thought about that movie. Jesus Christ, Nick, now you're making me feel like an asshole because I'm not watching art house movies anymore. Yeah. Especially when it comes to my list here, which is going to it's gonna lower the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. So for, for what my rewatch and listen, I've been still reading the Hellbore zine, which is, like, kind of witchcraft occult zine from England. It's, they're really good. They each, each issue is, like, themed around, like, you know, Salwin and um they just did a Yule episode or a Yule issue which I got. I'm still working through those. They're really, really interesting. Really inspiring zines. I love the art design. Love everything that's written into them. They're really well done. I can't wait to get the next one. Uh watch, and this is where the bar is gonna be lowered. I've been watching some riff tracks with my wife. Watch Robo Vampire, which I'd seen years ago, and let me explain this for those who haven't seen it. It is it's a movie with a RoboCop ripoff fighting Chinese hopping vampires. 
it nice. it's it's fucking ridiculous on its own. The riff tracks kind of helps it because the movie gets really confusing because there's like a ghost in it, and then there's like heroin smuggling. It's also one of those movies where like I think they took two movies that were incomplete and shoved them together, and made less sense. Uh, the other thing I've been watching just got the Discovery Plus app since the Discovery Channel now has its own streaming service, because my wife loves Ghost Adventures. <laughs> the The thing is, they had two recent episodes. They had one that was exclusive to it, where they went to the Cecil Hotel in downtown L.A., and they did an investigation. Cecil Hotel is probably most recently best known for Eliza Lamb, who, like, had that weird video of her in the fucking, um, in the elevator, and then they found her bo- naked body in the water tower. Yeah. Really, really creepy shit. And also, Richard Ramirez and Jack Unterberger, two serial killers, stayed there. So it's, I it, I like it because it's very LA centric, and I like LA's seedy, sad, dark history. So it's kind of cool to watch investigating. And it, you know, a lot of ghost hunting shows are kind of shit and very contrived. And I'm not saying this one isn't, but like it, they make it entertaining. And like, there's a, I think because all those dudes went to film school, so there's like a freeing like. It doesn't feel like a contrived, like, fake documentary. It feels a little bit freeing how they present it. They also went to the comedy store, and they've been shooting all this during COVID. So they went and investigated the comedy store, and, like, they brought up the stuff about Mickey Cohen and um, Bugsy Siegel, because it used to be a mob club before it became the comedy store. And they're talking about all the bodies that are probably buried in the basement of the comedy store. And they talked about when Sam Kinison allegedly got attacked by a ghost on stage and got, like, levitated and shit like that. Hell yeah. <laughs> So it that's what I've been watching. I, I have a ton of stuff from my Vinegar Syndrome and Severn Films Black Friday sales, but it's like, or yeah, I'm just gonna sit around and watch Ghost Adventures because that's what we do in this pandemic. It's not like any of those movies are gonna go away anytime soon. I'll get to them at some point. Listening, been listening to more Poison Idea again. Been kind of on that kick, throwing some Electric Wizard. Actually, while I was like reading the Hellboy Z, kind of fit. Uh, also been on a little bit of a goth, like 80s goth, like post-punk kick. I've been listening to The Sound and The Wake. Basically, if you put a the and a word after your name in like 1980s Britain, hey, you're a pretty good post-punk band. So I've been throwing those on as of late. And then the last thing I listened to is the soundtrack to the movie Conflicted, which is the, it's the movie, I don't know, how in tune are you with hip-hop, Travis? I will look at the best of the year list and download one album. Very in tune, I would say. Okay. So there's this crew called Griselda, which we've talked about on a lot of read, watch, and listens. Nick kind of hit me to them. And, like, I they quit, they're basically the guided by voices of hip-hop because they release, like, fucking 20 records a year. There's, like, three main guys, and they have a movie coming out called Conflicted. They released the soundtrack of the movie, and the soundtrack's really good. It's got a you know bunch of dudes from Griselda. It's also got some other dudes that aren't affiliated with the crew there on the soundtrack. It, it's a decent hip-hop record. And... I think Rizelda is going to have another like 20 releases in 2021 besides the soundtrack and the movie. So that wraps up January Jowl on the Cinematic Void podcast. I want to thank Travis for joining us. Hope to have you back at some point. Yes, please. Until next time, see See you in the the void. void.